Well, the reason I wanted to play that is we had a number of people, when Mike spoke that time, just were grateful for just some of the teaching that he had around that. And so I thought um, I would just expand just a, a little bit more on this whole idea of what we call transformational type of obedience and following the Lord. Um, I had our grandsons, I, I should say Grace and I had our grandsons over on Friday night, and they're two and four years of age, and... Um, Boy, parents, I feel for you. <laughs> Whoa, every minute you got your eye on one of them, and uh, I don't know how you do it with three. But anyway, we had two, and I'm getting ready to get my oldest grandson, who's four years of age, ready to go to bed, and I take my toothbrush out and put toothpaste on it, and he goes, Whoa, Papa, that's way too much. <laughs> You're going to get sick if you eat that much. I made an assumption that maybe he was thinking, you know, his parents were trying to get it because they're trying to save money, but it was all, it was about being sick. And, and so I said, okay, and I did it over and I put a little bit on it. Is that, is that okay? He's teaching me here. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's a lot better, Papa. So why talk about toothpaste and why talk about my grandkids? Just because it's fun. But beyond that, one of the things that I uh, wanted to share with you is that we would with our kids teach them to brush your teeth at least once a day. Some of you do that as parents, right, with your kids. And and the purpose isn't so that you go, attaboy, good job, so they feel good about a performance that they've done. The whole purpose, that's transactional. When we give, when we obey, whenever we follow Jesus, it's not about, if you take a time where you are quiet before God and you're reading his word, it's not God's going, oh, good job, I'm much more, you know, proud of you. He's proud. But for a transformational reason. Here's why. We want our kids to brush your teeth at least once a day because we want a transformed heart where they value cleanliness. And we want to save money in our pocketbook, right? So we don't have all these dental bills. But anyway, because we would tell our kids to take a bath once a week, whether they wanted to or not. And not after and say, good job, we're glad you took a bath, you're clean now. Because we wanted them to have a, formed within them, a value of what it means to be clean. And then by the time they're in high school, you can't, you say, one shower's a day enough, right? The reason I say this is, on this is, I just want you to know, the reason you give, the reason you share in with what God is doing through us to touch other people's lives is more than just about touching other people's lives, which I'll share a little bit later, God does do. But even more than that, God is in, he sees you as a kid and he's going, I want your heart transformed. I want you to become a generous person with your life, with your encouragement you give to others with the time that you give to others, with your very presence, rather than being distracted maybe when you're talking to them, whatever it may be. So, Father, we thank you. We ask that as we look at your word today, that you would open our hearts and our minds to be able to understand and to truly, truly you would unveil to us these truths that would make a difference in our hearts and our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we all make assumptions, right? And some of those assumptions are good assumptions and some are not so good. In fact, 
when we do make bad and poor assumptions about something or someone, they usually are detrimental in our relationship with them. And often we live with assumptions that create um, stress, and they also divide us not only from people, but they divide us even from God. And so as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we are looking at Acts 21... And I, I, you know, about two weeks ago, Bruce gave a, a fabulous message on all that preceded chapter 21 verses um, up to thought, verse 36. We're going to start at verse 37. But I want to share with you, assumptions can be really detrimental. We had a friend, Grace and I, in my first ministry, Fox Lake Community Church in Illinois, who lived right next to us. They started coming to our church. We got to know them, and it was really fun getting to know them and, and sharing in their lives. And at one point, we were having a conversation with them around dinner, and Sandy who is from the South, in fact, both of them are from the South, is this gregarious, fun-loving, just expressive person coming from a smaller town in the South, you know. She was friendly to a fault. Everyone, you know, was her friend in her mind. And she was sharing about working at a, a place where she was walking down the hall on her way to uh, either lunch or whatever it was, a break, and she walked by a, a younger lady who was dressed attractively and just seemed like a really nice person and who was new. And she knew she was new. And she walked by her and she and he said, hi. And the lady just walked right by. She said, well, you know, cause she's just not one who's easily dissuaded. So the next time she came and they were walking by once again, she said, hi. But she said it louder. She walked right by. Then one more time, Sandy thought she'd give it a try, and she tried to get this lady's eyes, but her eyes were down, and she couldn't get it. She said hi, and she walked by, and now she was telling us at this dinner that she was really somewhat upset with this person. She was talking with a coworker. I can't believe this person wouldn't, you know, just what a snob, stuck up, whatever. Maybe I'm from the south, and whatever. And the lady said to her, "You know, she's deaf." <laughs> oh. You think where her mind went through that assumption. We do those things all the time. And what this passage of scripture is going to talk about is some assumptions that were made. Thank God they were stopped at certain points because one of them would have been Paul's death. I want you to think about, as I go through this message, some assumptions you may have that are detrimental. They're detrimental to you. They may be detrimental in your own relationship with a spouse. We have a uh, marriage groups that we've been doing, and we've been developing leaders in this. And one of the things we call it is communicate to connect. So one of the things that we find often in marriages is the fact that we make assumptions. One group uh, book calls it a suicide. Because what we want people to do is say, because um, so often in marriage is what gets between you. You have a data, such as you said you're going to come home at 5.30. You came home at 6.30 again. you know. But we say, no, let's be specific. Last Tuesday night you came home at 6.30. Yes, yes. And then we teach people to say this. On the data we've agreed upon, my mind made up that I'm not important to you. You don't care about me. And you know, whatever it is. And due to what my mind made up, I feel sad and angry. And as we do this with couples and we do them in groups, people begin to kind of, on the other side, as we teach them empathy, you can't help but feel that and then move to a place of what is the need and how do you resolve it. 
I say that because we make assumptions. I remember when I was a young pastor, I had an administrative assistant, and I would give that person work to do, and I thought, man, I wish she was more skilled at her job. Until she was gone for a week, and I had to do the things I was asking her to do. And I realized I had no idea all that it required. You do that with your own bosses. You do that with other people you work with. You do it with people who you see in in positions where they have been given a responsibility, whether it's at work or whether it's at school or whether it's here at the church. And, And it's real easy to stand outside and go, wow, and make assumptions. And so what I want us to look at as we look at this passage of Scripture is how, as we go through this, I think God calls us to be aware of these kind of assumptions. Right before we get to this passage of scripture that we're going to read, there's already one major assumption that's taking place. Paul has come back. He's come back with some other um, Gentile believers, those people who are not a part of the Jewish culture. So they were a part of the out group, not the in group, so to speak. And in the way that it was set up in the temple, you had in the one place only Jews could go. And they saw a guy, a guy named Trophimus. They saw him, and he was a guy from, from Ephesus. And there was Ephesian Jews who were there worshiping. And they saw Paul with this guy who was a Gentile from Ephesus as well, and they saw Paul in the heart of the temple, and they saw him come out, and they thought, for sure, Paul's brought this Trophimus into the temple, which he never did. And that started a riot, and that started people wanting, they started saying, kill Paul, kill Paul. And they made an assumption that Paul had brought him in there, and he never did. Not only that, as that begins to happen, now the commander, he's getting wind of this, and so he brings a detachment of soldiers to, to quiet this um, this storm of, of violence that's beginning to just swell up with them in, in the people there. And they're, they're, in, in fact, it says at one point they came with these soldiers and they broke it up because they were about to beat Paul to death because of an assumption that they had made. And then the commander of the army starts pulling Paul away and Paul says to the commander at one point in Aramaic, can I speak with you, or can I speak with the people? And, and the commander looks at him, because he's made an assumption, hey, this Paul guy must be the Egyptian who had been on the wanted list for leading an insurrection of about 4,000 people. So now the Jews are making an assumption of what Paul did, and now the commander has made an assumption of who Paul is, And then we kind of begin the story. In Acts 21, verses 37, chapter 22 to verse 2. Let's begin here. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, Paul asked the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander was astonished because now Paul is speaking Greek to him. And he replied, Aren't you the Egyptian who started the revolt that led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? And Paul's response is, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. This was a, a major Roman enclave within this Gentile world. Please let me speak to the people. 
And after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic. So at this point, Aramaic is the common language for most Jews, whether you are living in Jerusalem or you're living in some other city. Hebrew is much more of a, it was becoming more of a refined religious language for the Hebrew people. And Greek was the language that was used in commerce all around the world. So you get these different views of what's going on just from a linguistic standpoint. Brothers and fathers listened to my defense, and when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. They all realized, hey, this guy that we assumed was such and such isn't, and they quieted down, and he spoke to them as a Jew. And so he begins in this thing. What I want you to note is the the very first assumption I want us to just pay attention to, even in our own lives here, is this. Don't assume you need more knowledge to tell others about Jesus. This is not about getting more knowledge. One of the things that we have said that we want to do as a church community is not only to serve people here in these suburbs around us, but we want to also proclaim, tell people about this incredible relationship that comes with God the Father through Jesus Christ and the grace that he has given us. And one of the assumptions people make is that I will probably do that if I get more training, if I'm getting more knowledge. I said this once before to us, I want to release us to the reality that you don't need, you, none of you need any more training. If you've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, all you are asked to do is share about that. What is that like? And so that's what Paul does. And you'll see as we go through this, Paul shares about his life before Jesus in verses 1 through 5. He then talks about his encounter with Jesus, and then Paul talks about his life after that has occurred since Jesus. So every one of you, if you want to talk about what does it mean for you to share your faith, you don't, it's great. We want you to learn and understand more of the Bible and understand more about the truth that you really believe that you hold to. But one of the most important things for you to realize when it comes to talking about Jesus is just tell people what your life was like before Jesus, what it was like in the encounter with Jesus, and what your life has now been like after. Because that's exactly what Paul does. Paul, one of the brightest guys around, all he does is he stands up and he does this very thing. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse um, 1. I'll start there. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I'm one of you. Identify with you. That's kind of what the before life is. This is what my life is like. I get it. I persuaded the followers of this way. Um, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the consul can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. This is my life before. And then he goes on and he talks about his life as he's encountered Jesus. Verse 6, about noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven 
flash all around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. So he just said, here's here's how I came into a relationship with Jesus. A man named Ananias came to see me, and he was devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. And he stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth, and you will be his witness to all the people of what you've seen and heard. And and now what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. I think it's really interesting is at this point in the story, they are still silent. They listen, obviously, with a real sense of um, interest to the first part of the story of what it was like before. Now they're listening with curiosity. Huh, this is an interesting thing. But here's the last part. Here's what, here's what he says, now that I've encountered Jesus, here's what's happened afterwards. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately, because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat them, those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there. They saw me standing there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. They're still quiet. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you away to the Gentiles. And then the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, and then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. Isn't that an injury? I mean, as soon as he said the word, God sent me to the Gentiles. The place erupted. Before they were saying, kill him on an assumption, now they are ready to rid him of the earth. He's just a bunch of scum. You got to get rid of this guy. So there's a couple of assumptions that I want you to think about here. Now, the first one is don't assume you need more knowledge to tell others about Jesus. Here's the second one, and this is what I think is really interesting, and, and it is this. We get this assumption that, uh, uh, that what we profess is what we believe. And I just want to have you think about that for a second, because the gap of what we profess... There's a gap between what we truly believe. What we profess is what we say begin to show up in our life. So let me just, before we do that, I'm going to read to you one last assumption to just get through this passage of Scripture. It says, the crowd listened to Paul. He said this. They started to shout, rid him of the earth. And as they were shouting and throwing off their clothes and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And he directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. So this is what he's going to do. He, this is torture till he tells us why in the world people would be that upset. Okay? 
And as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, <laughs> you know, he's getting stretched out. The centurion's standing there and he goes, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? Well, if in that culture, in that day, the moment you could actually be in prison and potentially yourself put to death if you flog a Roman without due cause. There's another assumption. Hey, Paul, this guy who's here, first I thought he's Egyptian. Now I know he's a Jew. Now I'm going to try and figure out what in the world's going on here so that he is causing all this disruption and all this violence going on. And then he kind of comes to this place and he goes, okay, as Paul's ready to get beat, Paul asks him, is it okay if you um, flog me? I'm a Roman. And that's interesting. And, and then the commander, it says, um, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and, and reported, what are you going to do, he asked. This man's a Roman citizen. And the commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Uh, yes, I am, Paul answered. And then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. And Paul responds, but I was born a citizen. That's a huge deal. So this guy's just thinking, Paul's, you know, he paid a bunch of money just like he did. And now he goes, no, this guy's actually a Roman by birth. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. On not the words even that he had paid for it, but on the words that he was actually born a Roman citizen. Now this is a big deal. They immediately step back. And the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. We make all kinds of assumptions. One of the things that's detrimental to a lot of people who are, who are in a place where they need to hear about Jesus is the assumption we made that somehow if we just got more knowledge, we would share others about Jesus. And the reality is it's just a matter of obedience. It's a matter of whether your heart really desires and longs for others to know him. And that's what leads me to the second one. Don't assume what you profess is what you believe. We argue about worldviews, but we show what we really believe by how we actually live. Here's the truth. We will always do what we truly believe. Not what we profess. How do you tighten this gap between what you profess and what you believe? Paul, um, a few weeks back in this passage of scripture, wants people to know what he really believes around giving. And so it's just a few weeks back, he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and as he's getting ready to leave, he says these things to them, and it's found here in Acts chapter 20, verses 33 um, through 35. Because Paul wanted to know, you know, I'm not just professing that I'm a person that works hard and gives to God and to his cause, but I'm actually one who does it. So he makes a statement, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companion. In everything I did, see, you can look at everything I did. What I said, I also did. I showed you by this kind of hard work that we must, what we do with the things that we work, we help others, the weak. And then he adds this, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, which we profess with him, it's more blessed to to give than to receive. And you know what? 
When it comes to professing, I would bet if we all were to answer a question, those who have, if if you've come to a place where you've had an encounter with with Jesus Christ and you're living with him, if you're not, you're going to be kind of, you know, this is time you're just hopefully hearing truth. But in, in this place, you've come to a place, and I bet you all of us would say, yeah, we profess a Christian worldview. We profess that we follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus was called, the followers were called the people of the way, which meant they weren't the people of the say, there's a big difference. Yeah, I'm the people to say. I, I, this is what I say. They were the people that way. They actually did what Jesus did. It wasn't just about profess. It's what they actually did when it was when it was time. This is the way things really are. We have worldviews that we say. We have mental maps in our mind that we actually live by. And so Paul saying. I live by this truth. It's better to give than to receive. Now, we all have gaps. I was talking to a good friend of mine who is in this place in his life where he was trying to debate whether he should work another six months. He's a medical doctor. He's at a place where he's ready to retire. And as he was working through this whole thing, uh, the clinic where he's at asked if he would work another six months just for some transition and doing some other things. And he had just gone on about a, I mean, the most this friend of mine ever took on vacation, I don't think he ever had two weeks off all his career. I mean, he would take maybe four days, five days, and working for a small clinic it was hard to do it when there was just one other doctor. So he's processing this, and uh, he, he said to me, um, I finally made a decision on working six more months, um, and I'm excited about it. I said, oh, Really? He said, yeah, I'm excited because of what I can do with that money. And I'm thinking, oh, he had just gone on a trip. I bet you wants to get one of these RV things because he had rented this thing. And you know how your mind works. He goes, I'm so excited because there's a, there's a person who I need, know in a ministry who is in need. And I can't wait to get these six months to get that money and to give it to him. I was inspired and completely humbled. Because it kind of just revealed so often in my own gap. I was talking to Tanvir, who we prayed for, who we sent to Pakistan, who is over right now in Pakistan, and I just, he's there meeting with these Pakistani Christians, which are the poorest of the poor. I think I mentioned it before, 60 minutes with the workers in the, in the, in the kiln, they did a story on them, and they are the, they're basically enslaved Christians in a Muslim world. And, Tanvir, who is one of them, goes back there and he's been doing all kinds of work to help these Christians, but he went back this time. He's there right now because there are Afghanistani Christians coming into Pakistan who are those who have run from what's happened in the recent events in Afghanistan. And they've come because Pakistan's right next, you know, you can get right into the country. And they're staying in the homes of of Pakistan Christians who have nothing. But they give him a place to sleep. And Tanvir was telling me that he had seen and been with four families in one town, drove four hours to another town where there are three families, drove one, uh, another um, six hours to another town where there are 17 families. And he just said to me, Kevin, is there any way the church, you, um, can, can do anything for these? And I said, well, you got to tell me what do they need? Well, they need, they need blankets, they need clothing, they need food, they need water, they need medicine. And I'm thinking to myself, oh boy, how much is that? 20,000 going to be? And I said, well, then how much per family? He goes, you probably for one family for one month, if you had a hundred dollars, 
they would be able to make it as they use this time to possibly go to some other country, Canada, wherever it may be, they can get in. And I was a little bit floored, but I was at first immediately didn't go, God, how do you want us to meet this? And when I heard that, I just said, man, our church is going to, $2,400, no problem. And so talked with our our global serve board. They um, took in the information. They came back and out of their budget said, yeah, we can give $2,400. So whether you know it or not, you just gave $2,400 to Afghanistan Christians. But... My point is this, what we profess and what we really believe, you have to think about it this way. The Pharisees in that day, they had a really good worldview. They, they were fighting against people who didn't believe in the existence of God, and not only that, they didn't believe in, in a, a moral life. And even within themselves, they kind of argued around their worldview. But when it came to truly living what you believe, they were living not the mental map of God throughout the Old Testament, but they were living, and they didn't live the mental map of Jesus who expressed God in this world. In fact, when they, when Paul said to them, hey, I'm here to go after some Gentiles because that's what Jesus called me to do, they get all up in arms. Crazy. So not only was their profession Different from what they truly believed, the way that God wanted their mental map to really look like if God was living here himself. Here's the last thing. They lived with what I call as an assumption of who are in and who are out. They had been chosen by God, not because they were the greatest people, because they had all kinds of military expertise, because they had all kinds of different things they could bring to God, not because they were the most moral of all the people around. They were not at all. In fact, I chose you because you were the weakest, and I chose you purely out of grace. And grace is why you belong to me. It is all a gift. My relationship with you is not about transaction. It's about transformation of hearts. And I bring the best of me to the worst of you, and I will make a difference. And I, I have to just say, folks, we are here, not because we belong out of something we have done, or because of some moral life you're living. We are here simply by the grace of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness which he's provided for us. Plain and simple. And God says, go out and take what I've done in your life, that encounter, and just share that with others. Just share your life. And begin to start moving the gap from what you profess to what you believe. Start shrinking that gap. Pay attention to where you say, oh yeah, I'm really into it. It's better to give than to receive. You know how you want to know if you really are? Look at your checkbook or your, your bank account. Most of you guys don't have checkbooks anymore anyway, right? Seriously. You know the American, the, the common churchgoer gets 2% of their income and, if, and then they go, well, but I give to other things. If they add in the other things, it's about 3 or 4%. 
I could do this with all kinds of things. I could say, it says, do not do anything out of selfish ambition, but in all ways, value others greater than yourself, says in Philippians 2. You know how, to, you know how you can decide whether you've got a gap in that? Just sometimes pay attention to yourself. When someone's talking to you, do you give them your attention? Do you really value what they're saying? Or are you fighting to kind of get them to understand what you want? There's all kinds of ways you can do that. And the final thing is this, and it's so important, guys. I have more that I'd love to teach you about this in and out kind of thoughts. But if you look at Jesus, Jesus was a great includer. He would break down barriers. He would talk to prostitutes. He would be with those who are sinners. He would spend time with people. In that day, the, the, the Pharisaic worldview said we can't do it. But the Jesus mental map of God the Father said I'm going to do anything to reach anyone. And I'm not going to say they're in or out. I'm going to say they're either moving away from God or towards God. And I'm just going to let God decide that. But I want them to come to not some kind of behavioral, moral lifestyle. I want them to begin to value what the heart of God values. Because I want my profession to truly begin to match my belief. So that I can be transformed in my heart to be like Jesus. I'm going to ask this to stand. And we're going to sing this song as a prayer. Make room. Make room in my heart. Just this great lines, and maybe someone can help me. It's again, shake, shake up my traditions. And I love this, and I always want to sing it, that's going to break up, and break up my religion. Every one of us have religious beliefs that are not truly godly beliefs. They're like Pharisees. And we need to say, God, more than important than anything else, we want you. I want room in my heart for more of you, more of you, more of you. That's what we're about. That's what we're going to lead. I believe a revolution can take place. If there's a church that starts just saying, I want the presence of God. I just want more of you. I'm going to stop living in my assumptions. I'm going to start living in the reality of the grace and truth of Jesus Christ.